स्मार्ट कास्ट लिसनिंग टू अंदुस्तान टाइम्स प्रोडक्शन प्रॉट टू यू बाय एच टी स्मार्ट कास्ट अनबैशन द मोस्ट अनप्रिडिक्टेबल बिकम्स अ हेडलाइन द मोस्ट वॉलेटाइल आउटफेजेस बिहेवियर अनसब्सटेंशिएटेड नैरेटिव्स अ बैटल ऑफ पर्सनालिटीज वेलकम टू ग्रैंड तमाशा आई एम योर होस्ट मिलन वैष्णव ऑफ द कार्निगी एंडाउमेंट फॉर इंटरनेशनल पीस Now if you're listening to this podcast chances are you are a fan of the podcast The Seen and the Unseen it's what I like to think of as the granddaddy of all Indian podcasts for 186 episodes and still counting the journalist Amit Varma has been putting together some of the most thoughtful insightful and eclectic conversations with the best and the brightest in India and ever since we began airing our little podcast here at Carnegie I've been inundated with requests to have Amit on the show So it is my absolute pleasure to welcome him to Grand Tamasha for the very first time. Amit, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me. You know, I've been listening to all your episodes over the months and I've been thinking that all your guests are people who put the Grand and Grand Tamasha. It's about time to put the Tamasha. <laughs> There you go. I I I'm excited for a little Tamasha uh, in our little Tamasha. Um You know, Amit, you and I have met at least on two occasions in person. Um once in Bombay when you invited me to be on your show and then another time I think at a conference in Hyderabad, but in those two occasions I don't think I've ever had the chance to sort of ask you about your background, where you're from, how you became the sort of Amit Varma of today. Uh and so since this is the first question you always put to your guests, let me throw it back at you. Tell us a little bit about your kind of upbringing your evolution how you came to be you know the columnist podcast host and journalist that you are today well you know there's this old john lennon quote life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans so i kind of epitomized that in the sense that i must be your only guest who's not a phd so your first non phd <laughs> uh, yes and yeah so i've i've kind of you know from the time i was single digit years old i wanted to be a writer but a storyteller a, a, a sort of a writer of fiction which is pretty much what i've always wanted to be and then i kind of meandered my way across life i started off in advertising in the mid 90s i spent a few years in television i worked in mtv and channel v then i tried to be an entrepreneur for a while and failed at it in the early 2000s um and uh, then i got into cricket journalism started a blog started writing about all kinds of things on the blog became a columnist and you know wrote for a bunch of people uh, written columns for pretty much all the main indian newspapers and i've written for people like wall street journal and so on and um, and and then i uh, i wrote a novel which was a pretty shitty novel and then i decided that i wanted to play professional poker so i did that for 5 years uh i was a professional poker player for 5 years and then uh and then i kind of got back to uh writing as it were and 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 the podcast was just a happy accident it was like you know a friend suggested that why don't you you know try this and and uh, you know he ran a, a podcasting company they were my erstwhile partners uh, till last year and um yeah so i gave it a shot didn't take it very seriously i wasn't someone who listened to podcasts and then as i started doing it i kind of started discovering that wait a minute this thing is uh, uh big not in the sense of is becoming popular or you know not in that sense of bigness but that i can do things with this that i cannot do in uh, any uh, uh, other medium and it's actually uh, you know uniquely suited and uniquely important for our times where otherwise this course can be uh, so shallow and uh, 
momentary and and then i kind of uh, you know and the journey took took on its own uh, momentum and here i am on the grand tamasha of finally so so two things i want to ask you about specifically before we talk about the podcast the first is about blogging so i am experiencing a bit of blog nostalgia right now um in that i actually am yearning to read more blogs and i'm sort of wondering and maybe because you probably thought about this more than i have blogs were a huge thing like 10 years ago then they've kind of disappeared and now i feel like people are coming back to them and i'm not really quite sure i understand do you get sort of how the pendulum is moving and why yeah i think i think what happened with blogs was that when i started i started because uh it freed me it liberated me from uh, a lot of constraints of traditional media for example there is a constraint of length where you know if you're writing an op-ed for a newspaper it's got to be between 800 to 1000 words here it can be 80 words or 8000 words uh, or 80000 words it doesn't matter and uh, freed from the constraints of following the news cycle freed from the constraints of specialities freed from the constraints of house style you can discover your voice so i would like blog you know i blog five times a day for about five years so i did, had about 8000 posts and obviously it was very popular so that incentivizes you to kind of uh, keep going so it was great writing practice but i think the age of blogs died and i don't think it's come back and the reason it died was a lot of the functions of blogs were uh, you know disaggregated by uh, social media so for example twitter took over the micro blog blogging function the filter function you know your personal posts aspect of it got taken over by uh, you know facebook and uh, uh, instagram and all of that so i think it kind of died where you had a few great destination blogs still going like the only blog i still uh, you know read regularly is marginal revolution uh, which is which is incredible uh, i think what is coming back though is is that look one blogs died because uh, the functions got disaggregated two they died because people stopped going to destination websites where a lot of people will not actually type in a url and go to a particular uh, destination website they'll instead just follow links that come up on social media and so forth which is why i think uh, the blog of today as it were if 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 one can use that term glibly is really newsletters because yeah you don't have to go to newsletters they're coming to your inbox and i think a lot of the most vibrant lively writing is uh, uh, happening on newsletters today in fact i started one a couple of weeks back myself uh, i know and i'm and i'm a subscriber and i'm but but i'm wondering uh so let's come back to this for a second but but you know the kind of evolution in your career made sense to me up until a point and the point where i lost the thread was the professional poker player <laughs> so to tell us about how that came in why you jumped into that and then presumably after a couple of years you left it again yeah i mean see the, let's not commit the teleological fallacy and assume that there is you know, a master plan because even in hindsight <laughs> even in hindsight there cannot be a master plan for that uh, particular shift but what what really happened was that i did a, you know uh, i did a lot of blogging that's around the time 2009 2010 where uh, you know i just lost interest in uh, blogging just ran out of steam uh, my book had just come out i was going to start work on another one and i went to goa which is uh, you know um, poker's legal in the offshore casinos of goa went out there played a bit uh, had a lucky first weekend and figured out i would do it and and the thing is what 
um i uh, you know what works for me in in everything i do is that i'm I, i'm an outsider in all of these fields i'm not a natural insider in anything even in television where i spent time or in cricket journalism where uh, you know i came into cricket journalism uh, excited more by the writing part of it than the cricket part of it though i was obviously as much into cricket as any other indian is and so i always uh, to whatever i did even even journalism i i got lenses which came from outside whether it's a economic lens when you look at cricket or uh, uh, you know and those lenses really helped uh, Uh, in poker because i could see the game from a vantage point which was slightly different uh, from what others would and poker of course as you know is a kind of a, a, a game of skill which is what drew me to it I, i was like okay here is a great intellectual challenge and unlike the other intellectual challenges i have taken on through my life i might actually make some money at this so uh, let's uh, kind of uh, do it so i did that for 5 years i wrote a column on poker for the economic times which i think was the only column on poker for a mainstream newspaper in the world um and uh, yeah and and but then it was it, it had a harsh impact on my lifestyle i put on tons of weight and i realized that poker requires a, a sort of an obsessive immersion which doesn't allow you to grow in other ways i literally felt that during these 5 years i was just getting stupider in other ways i might be getting much better at poker and i figured that no i mean i've done this enough and uh, you know the, the, there's a limit to how far it takes you so let's get back to uh, the real world as it but were you getting richer i guess that's the question i was get, I, i was making uh, more money than i would have doing anything else but i wasn't making a few money as it were so uh, i was kind of stuck in between that zone where fine i won't make this much money writing but nor am i you know buying my yacht and my private plane anytime soon and uh, therefore it, it, it's something that could just consume a few more years uh, and and i just felt that no it's about time i get back to uh, you know uh, uh, thinking about the world and writing and all of those things so you know i want to ask you about podcasting because i for one have learned a lot from listening to your show obviously from the guests but also in how you kind of curate the conversation um and you've spoken a little bit about how the medium of podcasting drew you in but one of the things i think is really unique about your show the scene and the unseen is that you're kind of creating an audio library that has a that can sort of stand the test of time right your show i think in one of its real value adds is that it has a sense of timeliness so you know we were discussing before we started recording your recent 3 hour episode with pratap banumetha you had a similar lengthy episode with karthik murlidharan the education economist you could revisit those conversations years from now and glean a hell of a lot of value from them so kind of what is your theory of the case because you know to some people the idea of a 2 hour 3 hour podcast is nuts but uh clearly it's not nuts right something's going on what's going on yeah i've thought pretty deeply about this so let me give it some context by taking you through my podcasting journey and what i learned about it when i got in i was not someone who listened to podcasts regularly and i assumed that people have short attention spans and a podcast should not be more than 20 minutes so 20 minutes was like my optimal length i even had one episode with my friend mohit satyanand which was an 11 minute miniature or a 9 minute miniature whatever 
And then what happened is... By the way, I should mention, Rohit has perhaps the best radio voice of all time. He has a mind-blowing voice. I mean, uh, you know, if he came on a show with the two of us, no one would be listening to us. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So uh, there I kind of... Uh, then I kind of figured out that, wait a minute, uh, you know, if you look at the medium, when are people listening to podcasts? There are really three use cases, uh, which are when they are commuting, when they are working out, when they are doing errands. And in each of those, they are a captive audience. If chosen to be a captive audience, uh, they're not really going to get distracted. Like if you're watching a YouTube interview, you can click on another tab. You can do, uh, you know, you can just close the window. You can turn your head. You can pick up a book. You can speak to someone. You can get distracted in so many ways. Someone listening to a podcast has chosen to be a captive listener. Uh, and beyond that, what they also do is people always listen at double speeds. Now, this is also interesting. The optimal speaking length for anybody other than our mutual friend, Karthik Murlidharan, is about 200 words a minute max, right? I speak at about 150, but about uh, 150, 160, but 200 um, a minute is how we naturally speak. But the brain, when it is listening, can process at about 500 words a minute. So it becomes really easy to process if you're listening at double speed like initially it is squeaky but the trick is you take it up to 1.2 that normalizes you take it up to 1.5 that normalizes and so on so i can listen to some shows at up to 2.5 but uh, so therefore what happens is you have a captive audience who uh, uh, you know and uh, your listener might be doing you know she might be commuting she might be working out but maybe she'll take an hour but in that hour she can consume two hours or more of content now that's how the use case kind of comes together, why the rules that apply to other media like YouTube, grab them in the first five seconds, doesn't apply to podcasting. The other interesting thing that I realized is that everything that they say that people want, uh, you know, people have a shallow attention span, a short attention span, give them shallow content, give them sound bites. That's bullshit. People have great hunger for deep content as, you know, as I realized when my audience grew, like the last two episodes I did with Karthik and Pratap are, both more than three hours and they are my two most popular episodes this year just in terms of the first week uh, how they've gone and I realized that there is a correlation actually between length and uh, popularity which is not to say that you just make it longer more people will download it but you know I calibrate the length of an episode as I go along and if it's really great I just uh, you know uh, keep going so um, the longer ones tend to be the ones which I also am uh, finding more fascinating. But to get back to your question, my approach to podcasts then evolved in the sense that I thought, look, the world is full of shallow content. The world is full of sound bites and brief interviews and all of that. Now, I know there's an audience out there which wants something deep. I know that's the kind of thing I enjoy doing because all of my podcasts, if you actually look at it, I'm very naked and vulnerable through all these uh, 186 episodes because I am sharing my intellectual journey. You know, I'm literally thinking aloud in every episode. If you look at the lines of questioning that I take, there's an evolution in my thinking where I've realized I was wrong about something in the past and it's just growing all the time. So I'm following my intellectual journey. But the other thing I decided is that I am not going to follow the news cycle. I am going to make episodes for a listener of 30 years later. So, you know, when I've, uh, friend, uh, uh, you know, one of my friends, a frequent um, guest on my show, Shruti Rajgopal, and when she was starting her own podcast, Ideas of India, which is an excellent podcast, by the way, uh, and we were chatting about that. And she asked me how I approached uh, mine. And my advice was, don't think of what your listener is going to think on episode one. Think of what your listener can binge on at episode 100. So let's say someone comes on to your show at episode 100, episode 150. 
think you know you want them to go nuts with happiness because there is so much great content to binge on so you want to build that so my approach really is that uh, you know now you know i always ask my uh, you know whenever i write to someone or or uh, i contact guests i always ask them for at least 3 hours of their time and and many of them are surprised because they're not used to that but i don't do it for less than that i've you know i've literally turned down nobel prize winners who were offered to me by the publishers because they could only give me one hour and my gig is that no i am not uh, you know i'm not trying to get a, a sort of a, a a casting coup here that hey look who i got on the show or hey this is topical we must do something now i want to do stuff which is definitive you listen to it 30 years later and obviously knowledge would have progressed uh, by that time but you can you know you can listen to my episode with say uh, pratap 30 years later and it 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 will still be it will still be wondrous because you know listening to a man like him uh, uh talking for 3 hours is is was just a remarkable experience for me as well so you know one of the things you alluded to was your own intellectual evolution and on your show in your writing in your columns you make no bones about your embrace of kind of libertarian thinking and you know sort of there's a joke amongst your listeners right that the particularly the hardcore ones that there's kind of a drinking game every time amit says incentives you take a shot of you know whatever you have on hand um I'm curious, you know, what was the eureka moment for you when the light bulb went off when a kind of libertarian world view started to resonate and make sense for you and say, "Aha, I found this filter or this lens now which helps me understand the world." I think you know, one thing to note is so I'm in my mid 40s and and one thing to note is that I don't have the sort of academic background where I went through college and I did a PhD and I did all of those things. Uh, you know, I I, I just um, uh, uh, didn't uh, you know go through those phases. So I never. Uh, so I wasn't a deep intellectual thinker in my teens and all of that. I was a voracious reader of uh, fiction and so on uh, right from the time I was very young. But uh, these were not things I thought about too much: political philosophy and economics. So all my instincts when I was a teenager and perhaps a young man were broadly left liberal because you want to be compassionate. You 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 know you feel uh, sympathy for the poor and all of that. And uh, uh, and you're broadly left liberal because at that time you're not thinking too deeply about policy and so on. So there's no eureka moment as such. But over a period of time, just living in India and you know uh, going through uh, seeing what the changes that liberalisation did, and also realizing that uh, you know once you start looking at policy a little deeper, and once you start looking at the state a little deeper, because everything is so normalised, right? And once you start looking a little deeper, you realise that. Um, what you thought of as compassion was anything but that you were judging public policies by their intentions and not their outcomes and that actually after uh, you know decades of what was uh, you know uh, well meaning well intentioned garibi hatao kind of socialistic policies we were still a desperately poor problem uh, we were still a desperately poor country and to me this was a moral problem and it was uh, which is why i often say that bad economic policies such as some of the things that indira gandhi did can be a, a crime on humanity and, and then of course uh, i kind of read a lot like you know when i was a teenager i sometimes went to college with you know uh, with marks in my uh, uh, handbag and uh, so on but you know eventually i kind of uh, 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 read a lot uh, contextualized everything to the india that i was experiencing and um, uh, changed my mind but i think the, the there wasn't a eureka moment but for me the big intellectual journey that has happened over the last couple of decades which um 
I'm writing a book on as well to kind of make my case for it is that look I think all of us ask ourselves two questions two two core fundamental questions which we consider as very different from each other one of them is what is the best way for me to live my life and it's a question of personal morality what is the right thing to do and the other question is what should be the relationship between the state and its citizens and that's political philosophy and that's a completely separate thing and most people don't connect these two and i have come to the conclusion of over a long period of time that my answer to these two is actually exactly the same which is that both in my personal life and in uh, you know the relationship between the state and the citizens i want to privilege consent i want to say consent is good coercion is bad and that is uh, not just a case that i want to make at a moral level but also when it uh, you know comes to the second larger question of the uh, state and the citizens at uh, a consequentialist level that uh, you know individual liberty respecting the dignity and autonomy of individuals is also good for society except that this is very unintuitive it seems unobvious and i want to sort of um, you know and it bothers me that there is this dichotomy in so many of our thinking that in our personal lives all of us you know all people that you know we regard as relatively decent human beings all of us are libertarian right in the sense that as i uh, a case i i think made in my episode with pratap as well that you know if you and i go out for dinner we won't force each other to eat uh, what the other person chooses we won't force each other to pay we'll respect uh, consent we'll frown on coercion in our personal lives we are like that but the moment we abstract it out we uh, sort of um, uh, uh you know lose these principles completely and we think of the state as some benevolent entity which doesn't have a cost but the point is you know i i once wrote a column called every act of government is an act of violence and we don't realize that the existence of the state is predicated upon uh uh you know the infringement of some individual rights and i'm not an anarchist i'm not saying that there should be no state and uh whatever but uh i just think that we should uh, you know i think all a uh, political ideology eventually comes down to the question of where do you draw that line how much coercion is justified if you agree the state exists you agree that some violence is justified how much violence is justified and that's uh, uh, you know wa- uh, drawing that line and and my uh, i have given up on trying to make the case that we should draw the line at this point or that point or whatever all i am asking is that every time we recommend state action for any uh, particular thing whether it is building a statue or building more roads or having a space mission or building more uh, uh, colleges whatever it is that we ask the state to do we should uh, acknowledge that there is violence behind that act and we should take that cost into account uh, you know the opportunity cost as economists would say and also the moral cost of that violence and then at the end of that you know you might decide that some things are justified and some things are not and you can figure out where to draw the line and my argument is not over where to draw the line my argument is to say that let's take the violence into account and not pretend that state action doesn't have a cost so let me kind of try to ground this conversation a bit in what's happening in india particularly on in the economic side of the equation. Uh you know many people including the journalist author James Crabtree have argued that India is experiencing something akin to the gilded age that America went through in the second half of the 19th century where you had excessive corruption, you had inequality, you had political capture. It was a really sordid period in our history in many ways. 
which of course was then followed by something known as the progressive era where you saw civil service reform and a cleanup of government and so on and so forth. And when you start reading about that period, which I've done just a tiny bit, not nearly as much as, as, as James and others, you start to realize that there was this coalition of strange bedfellows, right? So you had kind of social justice warriors, you had social reformers, people who fought for things like prohibition, you had good government types, and then you had the economic reformers. Now, in the American case, the nature of economic reform was somewhat different because the diagnosis was that laissez-faire capitalism has kind of run amok. We have to think about regulation. We have to think about build, breaking up the trusts and so on and so forth. Now, in India, uh, you could say it's the opposite. It's really about how do you free entrepreneurship and capitalism from the shackles that exist. But when you look at the coalition of strange bedfellows, what's interesting to me is that you see Three out of four groups quite active and prominent. You see the good government types, you see the social reformers, you see the social justice folks, but yet the economic reformers, those who want to not get rid of the state, as you said, but right size it so that it focuses on its basic elements of law and order, of justice, of tax, of public goods, and leave the rest. Um, what is your diagnosis for why this group is as anemic as it appears to be on the surface couple of points i mean i haven't read james on this so i'm not i'm not uh, sure where uh, uh, you know if, i i don't really i think there it, it's a danger to look at a very complex situation and a very complex society through a frame of what happened somewhere else long ago I, I i'm not sure that there's a correlation here because i think america in the 19th century was very different from what uh, india has been over the last few decades like you pointed out the sort of statism uh, that we have is, uh, 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 you know, wasn't there back then. If anything, people argue it was the opposite problem. But my, my, uh, you know, and when I talk about, talk of that statism, I, I mean it in, uh, it, it has two kinds of consequences. One kind of consequence is obviously the consequence on the economy, that you're restraining our animal spirits, you're not letting private entrepreneurship thrive, uh, you know, and so on and so forth, um, which is, uh, 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 you know, what held India back for so many decades. But there is also a consequence on the culture and there are a couple of consequences on the culture. One consequence is that because your whole society is designed around these institutions which are so powerful that the only way to really make money and to get rich is to use the power of these institutions to either become a part of the state or, uh, you know, uh, ally with the state in some way or the other and, they'll, uh, you know, do rent-seeking and, 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 and all of that. And the thing is that that then becomes a pervasive mindset of people where they are not thinking in terms of positive sum interactions that what product can I create that is of value to other people and therefore I will make a profit but instead how can I get myself a piece of state power so I can control somebody else's life and extract uh, rent from that and uh, uh, and you know this consequence of changing the culture so that people think in this way so that the uh, the oppressive nature of the state is normalized that we stop protesting it we take it for granted and i think that's a far greater problem and at its heart that's one of the reasons for uh, why the you know the uh, the question that you asked at the end of that why are there no economic reformers um couple of like number one i'd like to sort of underscore the fact that there or, or rather number one i'd like to sort of point to um, uh, why our politics is the way it is. So if you look at our political parties, for example, 
all our political parties are fundamentally the same in the sense that in in their economics they are statist and uh, you know culturally they cater to different kinds of uh, identitarian uh, sentiments or nationalisms or whatever to differing degrees now why is this a case if you if you think of politics as a game of supply and demand politics is a supply right what is a demand the demand is coming from the people the demand is coming from the culture and within the culture the role of the state is normalized so even though we don't trust the state to achieve anything successfully uh, you know we will still every any time there is a problem we will still demand that the state uh, legislates or takes action or solves it uh, and we look to the uh, state for answers uh, and apart from this there is the other issue of look the core economic truths as you and i know uh, you know the fact that all interactions are positive some uh, are a positive sum game or uh, the way spontaneous order works that you don't need central planning uh, all of these are deeply unintuitive we have evolved in prehistoric times when we were in small tribes where uh, you know games were more zero sum there was scarcity uh, you know and one um, a uh, strong man could actually run the entire tribe and do top down uh, uh, central planning as it were so our instincts have evolved to take all of that as natural so all of these deep truths of how markets work and so on are uh, uh, unintuitive so uh, and our intuitions are then often confirmed by the culture around us where we've normalized all the excesses of the state so the big game in town is uh, not how do we get more freedom from the state but how do we get uh, uh, you know some kind of hold over the state like uh, i i once wrote a piece sort of comparing um, and and this is of course now a cliche everyone compares modi with indira gandhi but i once wrote a piece uh, about uh, uh, you know, comparing them and pointing out that you know at the time of the emergency there is this famous story about how i think um, uh, george fernandez dressed up as a sardar and he was sort of running from the government because they were trying to arrest him and he goes to amdavad and the rss karyakarta who receives him at the railway station is narendra modi and i am like okay and this is a moment where the, the, there are these two guys who are dissenters from a deeply oppressive government and you would imagine that the lesson in this for them is that we must fight this oppression but instead the lesson in this seems to have been that we must be on the other side you know we must be the oppressors but but so you know some people attribute part of the blame as it were to the so-called kind of democracy tax right is that unlike how political systems involved in the united states and western europe and other places where you had the luxury of first building a foundational state and then gradually expanding political rights over time obviously india didn't have that luxury in 1947 you kind of went from 0 to 60 overnight and you had to do both at the same time do you think that india's troubled economics has uh some kind of root cause in that sequencing dilemma oh uh, yeah i mean that's a profound insight but the point is is not much we could have done about it like i don't see a counterfactual that necessarily works out better uh you know to to not have had the kind of democracy that we did could possibly have led to worse outcomes like one of my uh, uh, uh you know one of, 
one of my biggest bugbears is the way the constitution was designed where it is more liberal than our society but not nearly as liberal in the classical liberal sense as i would like it to be it doesn't do nearly enough to protect individual rights now forget what utopian constitution i want the point is could we have got a constitution better than this given the leaders that we had at that time did we perhaps get uh, the best of the possible bad deals i i really don't know but i can't visualize a counterfactual that um, uh, uh, really uh, ends up better so it's hard to say the the thing is that societies are so complicated and we have such a small sample size of uh, uh, you know nation states turning uh, democratic and all of that that i i feel hesitant to pass any kind of uh, judgment upon this and talk about uh, you know the democracy uh, tax or whatever i really don't know but i would say that i think the one great failure of uh, uh, whoever feels that the nation isn't uh, uh, you know sufficiently like they would uh, like it to me i think the one great failure of liberals for example to use that term very loosely is that we couldn't get our ideas into the society and uh, uh, you, you know it it turns out that society uh, in some ways uh, is fairly conservative has regressive notions uh, you know there are these tribalistic strains which in our modern times uh, seem to be uh, really strong and um, uh, and to me that's a failure it's a failure to imagine that we've got independence we've got democracy we've got a constitution it's over there is nothing to fight for and i think the fight should have begun in 1947 or 1950 and not ended then and in your many many columns for toi and other places you have been a, a critic i think of the modi government and i'm sort of wondering if you take us back to kind of 2014 was there a particular moment when this government kind of lost you as a supporter or as, as somebody who was willing to give them the benefit of the doubt? Or, or, or were you kind of skeptical from the outset? You know, because 2014, I think, was a, a, a an inflection point for many people. And uh, where you ended up, you know, depends on on, on, on your kind of ideological priors. Yeah, so I was uh, skeptical of Modi from the start. Uh, I mean, I remember writing in 2009 about this and, uh, 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 you, you, you know, that I, I, I abhorred the, the, the Congress and the UPA and especially the Gandhi family and the damage that uh, the Nehru Gandhi family has uh, done the country. So I constantly wrote against them. But it is obviously my fate to write against anyone who is in power because power, power corrupts. In fact, power attracts the already corrupt, as it were, uh, in moral uh, terms but no i was i was never a modi supporter i think i had some sympathies towards uh, the Vajpayee government and uh, looking back to that time uh, i think it's easy to see that he did a lot of things right and of course they also did a lot of things that one can uh, criticize especially on the social front and so on uh, but people contain multitudes as you know people like Vajpayee and Nehru and Ambedkar and Gandhi and so on. It's easy to paint them in binary terms and see them as black or white. But I think when you have decades of um, political life, uh, you have both. Uh, um, uh, you, you you do contain uh, those sort of uh, multitudes. Now, as far as twenty fourteen is concerned, I did not vote because I don't believe in voting for a lesser evil per se. 
you know i'll only vote when i can uh, you know I, I i i just feel that every non vote is a signal to potential entrepreneurs in the political marketplace that there is a gap in the market so uh, uh, unless i'm convinced about a party uh, i prefer not to vote so i didn't vote in 2014 but having said that i had no idea that the modi government would be this disastrous you know i was uh, sort of uh when he came to power i was like okay great i'm so happy that the previous guys have gone let's see how these guys turn out and uh, all of that and we pretty much had the worst case scenario so i think i realized in 2014 itself and obviously when someone comes to power you think in probabilistic terms so you're like okay that you know uh, there is uh, a non zero probability that uh, things would be better that there would be a centralizing impulse uh, a moderating imp- impulse that some reforms would happen because after all he had said many of the right things and it's not just me saying that modi said many of the right things i had the congress politician salman sos uh, on the scene in the unseen and salman said the same thing he said that when modi came to power in 2014 even though salman was on the losing side because he agreed with a lot of the rhetoric on economics of modi that um, he was uh, he was actually hoping that in some ways they'll succeed and of course it didn't so i think that was obvious in 2014 itself uh, and uh, and i started writing against him from right that time because it was fairly obvious they're not going to do anything i mean you just had to see the composition of the uh, cabinet to realize they're not serious i mean to have an intellectual like arun shuri in your party and not give him any responsibility and to thrust him aside i thought was uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, ludicrous but for me the great litmus test is demonetization i thought demonetization is a was a crime on humanity it's the biggest assault on property rights in human history if you look at the number of people who were affected by that and um, i was kind of horrified and i still am that many people who might have supported modi in 2014 for understandable reasons did not change their mind even now and of course we know that uh, all their uh, sort of house intellectuals were told that hey write columns in support and many of them did even though they privately disagreed with it and i find that contemptuous you know uh, uh, somebody once asked me why don't you invite you know xyz on your show and i said no i will never do that because for me demonetization is a litmus test it is not an issue of a disagreement on economic policy it is an issue it is a moral issue that you know the uh, modi committed a crime on humanity in fact hurting india's poor the most and uh, uh, the, the people who actively supported that uh, uh, you know i mean i don't even know what to say they they kind of leave me speechless i mean one of the things that you've been quite vocal about is this issue of nationalism in in addition to the economic policies so which demonetization trade um imports right there's a whole range of things but just asking about the nationalism but i want to just quote from something you wrote in april so this was right before the 2019 election you said quote this inclusiveness this joyous kitchery that we are is what makes our nation a model for the rest of the world no nation embraces all other nations as ours does my india this is amit's india celebrates differences and i do as well i wear my kurta with jeans i listen to ghazals i eat dansak and kebabs and i dream in the indian language called english this is my nationalism and quote which is a quite a powerful uh a, a statement it's been about a year and a half uh, give or take since you wrote this piece as you look ahead are you optimistic that the nationalism of amit varma which you so nicely eloquently described can be reclaimed 
this is a bit of a paradox you know so i often for example i'll t- i'll take you back to a conversation i had with the great politician jp narayan uh, you know one of the few politicians i still admire though he is uh, no longer in politics uh, uh, and uh, where, where i at one point spoke about our society being liberal and jp corrected me and he said that no uh, uh, where i spoke about our society being illiberal and jp corrected me and said no we're actually quite liberal and and you know look at um, the way we assimilate influences from everywhere and so on and so forth which is actually true now my case for our illiberal society is of course from uh, you know things like caste and gender the way we treat our women and all of that but paradoxically it is also true that we are liberal and there is this other kind of nationalism which is an assimilative nationalism none of our food has uh, you know all the staple things that we eat every day they have all come from outside i mean for god's sake stitch clothing has come from outside the elegant churidars of our prime minister uh, you know have an islamic origin uh, origin from the uh, middle east uh, you know uh, the, the language that we uh, uh, speak every day uh, has so many influences from all over and i think it's a joyous beautiful thing but the point is that this liberalism this nationalism so to say is a lived liberalism and not and uh, not one that is necessarily expressed and unfortunately it is one that is today absent from the national uh, uh, one that is today uh, absent from um, you know the popular uh, rhetoric and 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 this is one of those uh, you know and the left does this also you know you'll have uh, people from the left uh, ranting about uh, capitalism uh, while uh, you know typing on their ipads and using twitter and 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 there's that disconnect there and similarly on the right you have this disconnect that there'll be people ranting about outsiders while everything that they are has come from outside not just everything that they wear or eat but everything that they are has come from outside so i think there is a lived good nationalism a lived liberalism but in our rhetoric and in our politics there is a very dirty ugly kind of nationalism which speaks a language of exclusion and tries to uh, uh, you know other Uh, uh, certain people uh, among us which i find completely bizarre and at odds with reality and we you know one day hopefully we can resolve this paradox but until then i mean it it all exists right it's not one or the other all right amit so i want to bring this conversation to a close by asking you putting you on the spot uh by asking you the question that you often end your conversations with which is you know tell us one thing about india that gives you hope and one thing that gives you despair what what would be on your list so i'll speak about the despair first because why don't we end on a note of hope i think what gives me despair is that look things are getting worse and uh i do not see how they will uh, you know before they get better they will get e- even more worse uh you know and and that kind of uh, worries me the divisions in our society and and there are things that are happening that are not reversible what has happened to kashmir over the last year it is not reversible earlier you could have looked back at you know policy mistakes you made and said okay the next government will come in and we'll repair this and all of that but what we have done in kashmir and the kind of othering that we are doing uh, especially of uh, the muslims in this country i don't see how that will turn back uh, equally in terms of statism i don't hear um, uh you know i hear very few voices which are um, 
uh, sort of uh, fighting for individual freedom and dignity or whatever. Everybody just wants to uh, be the guy using the oppressive power of the state. You see all our political parties catering to the worst instincts in our society, uh, both in terms of, um, uh, you know, culture and religion and uh, identity politics and uh, all of that. So all of that gives me despair. But what gives me hope? is uh, sort of technology, because I think where political movements have failed to empower individuals, I think technology can do that, that technology can uh, disrupt the oppressive power of the state. I mean, the the, the fact of the matter is that uh, you and I across so many uh, thousands of miles are kind of sitting and exchanging ideas that my podcast can exist where I can create a repository of uh, exchanges around ideas and policies and so on, uh, which, you know, the future generations can access and, you know, learn from, get inspired by. I think that gives me hope in all kinds of little ways. I mean, you know, even uh, evil corporates like Uber and Twitter are empowering individuals in uh, uh, different ways, uh, which which we normalize immediately and take for granted. So my hope is really on the unknown unknowns of the future that will arise from technology and allow us to disrupt, uh, uh, you know, uh, allow us to disrupt what is happening in the political sphere and um, uh, let loose the better angels of our nature. Uh, that is a fine note to end on. I'll just uh, j- just add to that that uh, we, we we didn't get to discuss your abiding love of TikTok, the now ban- banned TikTok, which you know you said you're not a, a PhD, you're not a scholar, but you have perhaps the most scholarly thoughts on TikTok and its application in India uh, than th- that I've ever seen. Um, but Amit, it's a, it's a real pleasure uh, to have you on the show. Uh, for our listeners, Amit is the host of the podcast, The Seen and the Unseen, which is a must-listen-to weekly digest of some of the best conversations on what's happening in India. But you're also the host of a brand new show called Econ Central, which you co-host with the economic journalist Vivek Call. We'll link to both of those in the show notes. Uh, Amit, uh, I think our listeners are going to be very happy uh, that we managed to get you on the show and uh, and and keep doing what you do and look forward to, to, to being in touch and having you back. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. Grant Thamasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we referenced on this week's episode, visit our website, granthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Jonathan Kay. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Maya Krishna Rogers is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.